All right. Well, I was wondering what to do this morning. It's always hard to kind of come in and do one Sunday school lesson and not have like a series that can build on itself. So uh, I wrestled with what to do even up to uh, uh, the last uh, moments. But there was one thing as I was considering it that kept coming up and it was the issue of trusting God in the midst of trials. And so let's look at that this morning in Psalm 119. Go ahead and turn over to Psalm 119. We went through Psalm 119 years ago, probably five years ago on Sunday evenings here. So we're really revisiting it. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 65 to 72. 65 to 72. And essentially looking at the psalmist's reaction to affliction in his life, trials, difficulties in his life, and the way that he grew through it, the way that God used that in his life, and how we can learn from him. Now, to introduce this, uh, who knows what a theodicy is? We've said that a lot lately, particularly it's been something discussed uh, in relation to the shooting at Newtown. I mean, not in general conversation, but among us and Christians. Does anybody know what a theodicy is, Noella? No. No, it's not that. Nobody? Okay. Theodicy essentially addresses the question of how are we to understand evil in relation to our knowledge of God, his, primarily his goodness and his sovereignty. And so theodicy is the theological category that that falls under. Um, because that really is the issue. And one of the main, I mean, for many unbelievers, one of the main issues is how... Do we reconcile the goodness and the sovereignty of God that's proclaimed by Christians with the fact that there's so much evil and suffering in the world? To them, that is uh, irreconcilable. Um, And so, that's where unbelievers will often attack the person and the nature of God. And they usually argue in this way. That if God is good, then He would not allow suffering... And if God is, uh, so then, but because suffering exists, that God therefore must not be good. Or if God is uh, good, then it must imply that he's not sovereign and he can't stop the evil that goes on uh, in the world. And so that's usually how the argument goes. In a wrong attempt to answer this question, in, uh, a guy named Rabbi Harold Kushner, have you all heard of Rabbi Harold Kushner? Right, when... Good things, or when bad things happen to good people, that was written, I think, in the 80s. I could be wrong, but I think it was in the 80s. Uh, in that book, he made, he made this uh, suggestion that God is not uh, truly sovereign, that he cannot control evil, that he's only able ultimately to endure it with us and to help us suffer through it. Now, there's also that, that approach in a, in a couple of different nuanced ways, but is the approach of what is, in contemporary theology, open theism. Have you all heard of that? Open theism? Okay. But that is not the answer that Scripture gives us, and that's not the answer that we see in the psalmist uh, this morning, who was a true believer, and he understood the realities of both God's goodness by his nature and God's sovereignty and his rule over creation. So he 
understood both of those things. And so when he experienced his affliction, when he experienced difficulties, and when he experienced the trial, particularly that he'll be addressing in these verses uh, this morning, 65 through 62, he was able not to be destroyed by it, uh, distraught, uh, plunged into despair, but he was able to endure it in a way that he grew spiritually. A good question to ask uh, that when we go through trials is how can I not waste this trial? How can I not waste this trial? And so that is really the theme then of uh, these few verses. The, uh, the theme would be this. The joy of learning to trust God and to grow through affliction. The joy of learning to trust God and to grow through affliction. And there's two ways then that... Uh, I broke this up. You could do it in other ways. But the two ways here are this. To rest. One is to rest in God's character. And the other is to rest in what God is doing in you. Okay, so those, that's going to be the two categories that we'll look at. To rest in God's character. And to rest in what God is doing in you through the trial. And before we read the passage, I want you to note. And notice as we read through that the, the psalmist's response to his trial flows out of his knowledge of Scripture and his commitment to the Word of God and the promises that God communicates in it. And I want you to notice also the repetition of the term good. The repetition of the term good applied both to God and to His Word. So let's go ahead and read this. And I'll read this simply because if uh, anybody were to listen to recording, they can't hear it if somebody else reads it. So beginning in verse 65, reading down through verse 72. You have dealt with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good discernment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The arrogant have forged a lie against me. With all my heart, I will observe your precepts. Their heart is covered with fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. So let's swing back around to verse 65 and note then how he rested in God's character. And that he saw God's goodness in the trial. Now, I'm going to walk through this. This, of course, isn't sermonic as much as it is just walking through, thinking through this section with you. So stop at any point that you'd want to make a comment uh, that's relative or to ask a question. Now, notice the terms that he used. Here in verse 65, he says, you have dealt well. I think if anybody has a New American Standard, it's well. Uh, the word behind that is very often translated good. Good. It's used five times that same term in these uh, few short verses. And it carries the basic idea of what is pleasing, uh, what is right, and what is best. And it's appropriate then to this psalm. Uh, just to, to illustrate that a bit, it's good. It's the same term used when God created, at the end of God's creation in Genesis 1.31, when he looked at everything and he says that it is good. It's right. It's harmonious. It's reflecting my character. It's doing what, it is, what it, I designed it to do. Uh, it was used also of the food that God gave man in the garden. It's used in an ethical sense. 
So, for example, in Micah 68, he says, He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. So there are good things morally and there are bad things morally. Of course, in that context, it is what is uh, faithful to God's covenant and what is reflected in God's covenant with his people. And then uh, bad would be what goes outside of that, what transgresses the law, what is iniquitous and sin. In terms of uh, the unbelieving, Psalm 14.1 says this, using the same term, there is no one who does good. So it is impossible then for an unbeliever, regardless of the deeds in their life, to do anything that is pleasing to God, is the idea. To do anything that is acceptable, that is pleasant, that is right before God. Uh, that is reflected also then in Romans 3 when he says there is none who does good. He's not talking about specific acts, but because of moral and spiritual corruption, it means that everything is infected with that. And apart from being cleansed by the blood of Christ and responding in faith to God and to who he is, trusting in his son, it is impossible for them to do anything pleasing and pleasant to God on their own. So that's the idea. There's a lot of examples, but that's the idea of goodness. What is pleasing, what is pleasant what is right so he says here then you have dealt good you have dealt well you have dealt rightly then with your servant O lord according to your word and remember here then the the context is the affliction that he's under undergone so when he says that he's saying that in the context of affliction he says it in verse 67 i was afflicted he says it uh, again in verse 71, I was afflicted. In verse 69 and 70, he talks about the arrogant and the way that they attack him and the, the way that they uh, act arrogantly towards God and towards him as a servant of God. And yet in the midst of that, his overall attitude towards his circumstances is that God has dealt well with him. He has dealt good and goodly with his servant. And I think if there would be a way to illustrate the idea of good, um, as the psalmist is using it here, it would be that very familiar statement of Joseph in Genesis. Remember? What, does anybody remember the statement? Genesis 50-20. He actually says it earlier than that too, but Genesis 50-20. Remember? Right. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And it highlights an aspect of God's goodness then that the psalmist wants us to understand here in this, these few short verses. That God's, and it reminds us that God's ultimate plans for good are not always perceivable at the moment. As they certainly weren't for Joseph and they aren't for our psalmist. And in fact, his ultimate purposes are not usually readily perceptible to us. We understand them by looking at God's word and who he is and what he tells us he's doing in the trial. But it's not always easily discernible uh, at the time. But in relation to his purposes in our life, it is always good. It is always good. Now the reference in Genesis 50-20 has immediate application to the preservation of a nation, namely the nation of Israel or the soon-to-be nation of Israel. But more, the more significant principle of God working his good purposes through adversity, particularly in the life of individuals, is the fruit of that. And the purpose of what uh, both Joseph was emphasizing and what the psalmist is emphasizing. 
So as we mentioned already that he is experiencing adversity and hardship, and yet in the midst of it, he's able to say God is good and he's dealt well uh, with him. And so our goal as a believer is to define goodness and the goodness of God's ways and um, according to Scripture, according to who God really is. The new, another New Testament way uh, verse that really captures that is Romans 8.28. For God works all things together for good to those who love Him. To those who love Him. And, and it's, it's that perspective that Joseph had that Paul tells us in Romans 8 that is able to cause us to respond uh, this way. And you know, I think you, you might are familiar with it, but what is often forgotten in terms of Romans 8 is what is the context there? Is it a flowery life with no problems? What is the context of Romans 8? What does he end that verse or that chapter with? Does anybody remember? Uh, quoting from the Old Testament, we are like sheep being led to slaughter, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Uh, and particularly what cannot separate them is tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. In other words, he's giving that in the context of suffering. And right before that in Romans 8, he's talking about how he and all of creation are groaning because of the effects of sin internally and externally in the creation. And that would include the wicked deeds of men. So the idea here then is that adversity is a part of this world. Adversity is particularly the experience of his people. It's the experience of the psalmist. And yet, when he looks at all of this, his final conclusion is in verse 65, you have dealt well, goodly, with your servant. And it's because he had the perspective of God's sovereignty and goodness rightly married together that he could rest in his adversity. Now... He says then in verse 66, with, from this frame of mind, teach me good discernment and knowledge, or good judgment and knowledge. And, and here what he's celebrating then is that uh, God is using this trial to help him walk in wisdom. And so he's wanting more of that from God. He's realizing that that is a fruit of what God is doing in his life, and so he's also seeking that from him. And look, look what he says, uh, then immediately following that. Teach me good discernment and knowledge. I believe in your commandments. And then he immediately says in verse 67, uh, before I was afflicted. Uh, before I was afflicted. And so what, he, what he's essentially doing here then is saying, look, before I was afflicted, I lacked the discernment and knowledge and the robust faith and the deeper faith in your commandments that I have now afterwards. And so I want you to continually, essentially, teach me that more. Teach me wisdom. Teach me discernment. Teach me true knowledge of yourself. He's not speaking here of, of course, just factual knowledge. Intellectual knowledge is how we refer to it. In other words, just knowledge that's in your brain. Uh, like, you know, math. Not that that's in my brain, but in other people's, like math. Uh, he's saying the knowledge that is experiential. Uh, the knowledge that is experiential, not only of God himself, though that's the ultimate end, but experiential 
uh, of the truth of God, experiencing the truth of God, not only knowing it in his mind, but the reality of it in his life. In other words, he's saying he wants to better understand and submit his life to God's way so that he may learn to better order his life and step with the will and the ways of God. And what he's displaying here is what's essential for us to have in all trials, which is a teachable spirit. A teachable spirit. So he says, teach me. Teach me good discernment. And there's a clear progression of thought here. Notice he says in verse 66, teach me good discernment and knowledge. He's asking that of the Lord. In verse 68 he says, teach me your statutes, which is essentially God's instruction manual of his goodness and discernment and knowledge. And then in verse 71 uh, he says that I may learn, same root word, your statutes. And so in other words, that I might be taught your statutes. It's another way we could think of that. That I might be taught your statutes. In other words, he's learning here in the school or the classroom of God's sovereignty. And he's learning the lessons of affliction. And the grades that he receives is determined by his faith. And so is ours. How much we learn in a trial is going to be directly attached to how much faith we exercise in the trial. So it is possible to experience hardship and never actually grow in faith. Like it's possible to grow old and not be wiser when you're older. Because you've not applied the, the, to seek wisdom and to behave wisely in life. So sometimes older people are just older. That's all they are. They're not wiser. Sometimes Christians can go through many trials and it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to bear the maturity that they should have had and was designed in them through those trials because they're not responding to faith in them. They're continually resisting the will of God. And so that's not what's happening with the psalmist here. He's saying, look... Teach me. I have a teachable heart. I want to learn in the midst of my affliction. I want to learn what it is that you are teaching me. Um, and that is, that's a wise way to respond to, to trials. I, I don't know about you, but I think uh, in the midst of those things that are difficulties and trials, I think, you know, I really want to learn this lesson because I'm, he's not given up. Right? He's going to conform us to the image of Christ, and, and he's going to conform me to the image of Christ. And so I'd rather learn the lesson now, which is going to bear the peaceful fruit of righteousness, rather than to have to continually experience the same thing over and over and over. And you ask yourself that sometimes, don't you? If it seems like a, a common trial continually comes in your life in different shapes and forms, eventually we, we should ask, what are you trying to teach me? What is it? What are you doing here, Lord? Uh, and so that's what the psalmist uh, does here. But notice here that he doesn't do it apart from a knowledge of God's word. He's not, he's, not, he's not ever here divorced or detached from God's word. So sometimes then the trials for us, what do they do? They, they drive us away for some of God's word. I can't really go to scripture. I can't really pray because I'm so distressed. That's the exact opposite of what we should do. That's what our flesh wants to do. That's what our natural inclination is to do sometimes. It seems easier just to kind of go meditate off somewhere, which really is meditation not on who God is and His truth. It's kind of meditation on our problems, meditation on the difficulty, meditation on how we feel about it, which draws us more inward to ourselves rather than out of ourselves to, to see who God is and what the big picture of going on, what, of that's going on in our life. And so the psalmist here is experiencing this trial, but notice that he's, he's 
he's totally immersed in the word of God uh, as he's going through it. Verse, he says, teach me for I believe in your commandments. So he's not wanting this teaching to come apart from his growing understanding of God's word and how it applies to his life and how he can honor the Lord through it. So he's applying the word to himself. He's applying the word to himself and he wants greater insight and illumination from the word. And notice here then it's also in the context of prayer. It's also in the context of prayer. And he says, I have put my trust uh, in you. I have put my trust. Basically means to cause, uh, is to have a confidence in him. If we're, that's, and that's where he says, I believe in your commandments. He's really to say, I've, I've put my trust in your commandments. That's the idea there. I've, I believe and trust, faith and trusting are two sides of the same coin. It's the same, it's the same thing. To believe God is to trust Him. To trust Him is to believe Him. And the idea here is it has the idea of, of to, to cause to be certain or sure about something. To be certain about or assured of. What's the New Testament definition? Do you remember? Hebrews 11. One. Faith is... Yeah, that's the King James Version. Yeah. Right. That is. It's the assurance of things hoped for. It's, it's having confidence in those things that aren't, that aren't seen. That aren't seen. Without faith, we have no stability. Without confidence in God's word, we have no stability in the midst of trials. And obviously, as we understand, this is not faith in faith. It's not general idea of faith. It's faith in Something, it's faith in a person. Uh, here, faith in God. Faith in God. So the point here that I would note is that God's goodness is seen for the psalmist, and so it is for us in the midst of a trial when our faith in God's word is increased. When the experience of the promises of God's word are increased, when human reasoning fails and your own resources give away, that's when the heart and the life are most prepared to know God's strength through faith, trusting Him, and leaning on His Word. Which is the point as he goes uh, throughout the psalm. But I want to uh, pull the car over here for a sec and, and say, see an application of this as how we fellowship and deal with each other. Learning from the psalmist's own source of encouragement to consider how we encourage one another. And, and we encourage one another when we understand that the source of true encouragement is God's word and God's promises, who he is and what he's doing in our life. So this isn't just for us personally, but we need to understand this is how we encourage one another. Sometimes when we think of that person needs encouragement or we want to be an encouragement to one another, what are things that we typically say sometimes? Huh? I'm so sorry. Yep. What are, what are some other things that we say? Uh, how about this? Things are going to get better. Don't worry. It'll all work out. That's not biblical encouragement. And I would suggest that those are the least helpful things to say. They're leading, they're leading people away from God's encouragement that he's provided. For one thing, we don't know that things will get better. They may not. They may, in fact, get worse. This trial may end, it may not end. I don't know. Uh, and, and frankly, 
when we say those things, we're, we're, we're working towards another goal than God is working towards. God isn't working towards things getting better, right? That's not his ultimate end in this life. He's doing something other than that. When God brings trials and afflictions into our life, he's not just working towards things getting better and things working out as we're thinking of things working out, which is the loss of the trial. He's thinking it in terms of what he's doing in us to increase our holiness and our likeness to Christ. So we can't just say, cheer up, uh, God is sovereign either. That's closer, but it's still insufficient. So let me give you a few words of, um, or a few uh, rules of encouragement. A few rules of encouragement. First of all, this. We are never to encourage somebody who's responding sinfully to affliction in their life. We're never to uh, give encouragement in the sense of everything's going to work out or, oh, I'm so sorry, and that kind of encouragement to, that's not biblical encouragement is what I'm saying, to somebody who's responding sinfully to life's situations. We encourage them biblically by giving them a gentle rebuke and admonishment, not a superficial encouragement. That's expressing love to them. Secondly, encouragement biblically are those things then that point us back to God's word and to God's character. That is what true encouragement is. Let me give just a couple of examples of, of this. Um, in Hebrews 3 through 4, I'll just mention two examples that uh, relate somewhat to one another. In Hebrews 3 and 4, well, we won't look at all those uh, chapters, of course, but, but he is saying this. Uh, he's warning them about drifting away from the gospel as Israel did when they were in the wilderness and they kept testing God. And then he says, Take care, brethren, that there not be, in verse 12 of chapter 3, Hebrews, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called the day, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. So today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. So what is his encouragement there? He's saying, look, persecution is taking place. It's difficult. Some of you are wrestling with abandoning the gospel and abandoning your faith in Christ. And the encouragement that he gives them is saying, hold on, look at the consequences of if you fail to be faithful to Christ, but and encourage them, he is, with the reality that sin is deceitful. Don't give in to it. Uh, the consequences of your decision are eternal. Consider that. Think about who God is and the salvation that is being offered to you. The point is, is that the encouragement is pointing them back to God's words, the realities of the gospel. Let me give you one more. Uh, in 1 Peter 1, there's a lot of places we could go here. Uh, 1 Peter 1 uh, the context of 1 Peter is their suffering. Their, their suffering is a consequence of their faith in Christ. Their suffering uh, as a consequence of their 
testimony to the Lord Jesus, their salvation. And the suffering that they're enduring now is actually only going to increase. It's a suffering from the political system that they live in. It's a suffering from their social circles, their families. It's a suffering economically because of their jobs and the the losses uh, that come as a result of their faith. They're suffering in many ways, physically, some of them. They're suffering because of the gospel. So what does Peter encourage them with? Well, he says this is his encouragement to them. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. That's his encouragement to him then. They're suffering, and Peter says, you know what? Consider the greatness of your salvation in your future. And entrust yourself, he'll say later, to a faithful creator in doing what is right, just as Jesus entrusted himself to his Father in the midst of being reviled. And that's how he did not revile in return. That's the example he gives in chapter 2 of 1 Peter. So we encourage one, uh, people by pointing them to, to gospel realities, to the truth of Christ, to the truth of our inheritance, to the truth of what God is doing in our lives. So when we encourage them, we, we point them to the goodness of God. We encourage them to remain faithful, to trust in Him, to rest in Him in pain and sadness. And to a believer, that is the greatest encouragement. Is when we're struggling and somebody to come and, and show genuine sympathy, but within that sympathy to point us back to God's character, to point us back to His way. So we need to learn those rules of encouragement. That just as what the psalmist here is demonstrating, that we want to make sure that we're giving gospel encouragement to one another in trials, helping one another to persevere in holiness, to overcome temptation, to not give in to despair by pointing to who God is. And we should never encourage, one's one final note, we should never encourage in the sense of just, you know, trying to make somebody feel better, uh, self-pity and pride. We should never encourage that. When somebody gives us a sob story and it's, and it's demonstrating more self-pity and pride, then we need to gently and lovingly and graciously and kindly, knowing that we are susceptible and we too sin in the same ways at different times, we need to help them to understand, you know what, brother, your eyes are not looking on Christ. They're totally focused on yourself or sister. And, and you, need to, you need to stop putting yourself in the middle of this and to put God in the middle of it and trust Him and grow. And we need to encourage them that way, uh, not just feel sorry for them and say everything's going to get better. Okay, that's, that's just a little aside. Look what he says in verse 67. He says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. And so he recognizes here then in his trial that God's goodness was seen. Remember, God's goodness is what's flowing throughout of this. God's goodness was seen in that the trial caused him to take his sin more seriously. It caused him to take his sin more seriously. Before he was brought low through the trial, he was blithely living in his sin. And affliction brought it to the forefront. It caused him to consider his ways. It caused him to re-examine his life. One has said this, that affliction is to the erring Christian as an alarm clock is to one who is apt to oversleep. <laughs> Isn't that something? 
In other words, like an alarm clock wakes us up out of our slumber, affliction sometimes wakes us up out of our spiritual lethargy. And affliction is like that alarm clock acts to awaken in us again a sense of sobriety and seriousness about spiritual things. And sometimes, uh, and I can say in some measures, this is experience in my own life, I know it is in others, that God works out assurance of salvation in the crucible of affliction. Through affliction, he produces assurance of salvation in people. As they respond and as they struggle through the hard issues, but they come out at the other end still wanting to honor the Lord, still wanting to know him, still wanting to obey his word, that is what produces assurance in people's lives, that, that perseverance. They can look back at those things and say, well, I wasn't like those weeds that, or those, those weeds that grew up but left during persecution and afflicted. I struggled, but at the end, I still want to follow Christ. They can look back at that and gain assurance. And that's part of what Paul means when he says uh, how the Spirit produces assurance in our life in Romans 8. Because we see the evidence of the Spirit in our life. And one of the ways that we see the evidence is that when we go through trials and difficulties and disappointments, we persevere in faith and we don't walk away. An unbeliever walks away uh, very often. And that was Jesus' own warning in Matthew 13. So God sometimes works out assurance in our lives and in our hearts through the crucible of trials. But here, he was going astray. And another way you could uh, translate that or uh, say that is he was sinning inadvertently. He was sinning inadvertently. You know, in the Old Testament, there was... A sacrifice. Do y'all remember this for unintentional sin? Do y'all remember that? In Leviticus? There was a sacrifice for unintentional sin. Uh, when somebody sinned unintentionally. And, and we see that uh, throughout the Psalms and throughout godly men. What did David pray in Psalm 19? Psalm 19. Uh, he asked God to reveal his heart. To see, well, Psalm 139, he said, see if there be any hurtful way in me. Uh, I can't quote Psalm 19 right now because Psalm 139 is in my head. So let me turn there. Uh, He says, who can discern his errors in verse 12? Acquit me of hidden faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I'll be blameless and acquitted of uh, great guilt. He's essentially saying... Acquit me of those things that I'm not even aware of, my hidden faults, and keep me from blatantly sinning against you. Keep me from blatantly sinning against you. And here, this psalmist is essentially saying that I was sinning unintentionally. There were sin patterns in my life. There were wrong, sinful attitudes and perspectives and direction in my life. It's not saying he was out there living some promiscuous or disobedient and rebellious life. That's not what he's saying at all, because he wasn't. He is simply saying that as a sinner who's unaware of the depth of the depravity of my heart, there was sin in my life that I did not know about and would not have known about had you not brought affliction into my life uh, to expose it. This, again, is just... A reminder for us, sometimes we might say or hear other people say uh, things like, you know, I can't believe I did that. Well, that's not really who I am. You hear people say that? That's not really who I am. What's the biblical answer to that? (laughs) It is who you are. That's the point. And the fact that you say, I didn't know I was capable of that, that's the very point of the trial, to bring that out. And when that impatience comes out in this sort of violent, more sort of sudden way, 
It's to say, well, that was lurking in my heart. I had, imp- I had this in my heart. Uh, so we are like that. We are wicked. And trials bring that. Trials are like sponges. Have you ever heard that illustration? Anybody heard that? Uh, trials are like sponges. Uh, if you put liquid into a sponge, it, it's like uh, you don't really know what's in there until you squeeze it out. Right? It's in there. But as long as it's just in there, not dripping out, right? You work with the illustration here. Uh, it's just in there, saturated, and you don't really know it. But then a trial is like the pressure that comes in from life that squeezes that in our hearts. And all of a sudden, the stuff starts coming out. And that's God, like the psalmist is saying here, showing us uh, what's in our hearts. And so when we see that, it should lead us then to greater humility, realizing the depth of our sin and need for grace. And greater confidence in his grace and greater repentance and uh, seeking, his, and seeking uh, obedience. So that's the idea. But he's saying, I didn't really know that before I was afflicted. But now I keep your word in this sense. Again, not like I didn't keep your word. That's not at all what he's saying. He's saying, but now I keep it to a new level. I keep it with a new uh, depth of faith. I keep it with a new fullness in my life that I didn't know uh, before. Now, there are a lot of examples. One would be uh, Job, of course. Right? Job was a righteous man. And we're, we know the story, but he was a righteous man. And God put him in the crucible of affliction. And he responded good at first, but as it went on, uh, his heart began to be exposed. And there were some deficiencies in his love for God and his trust in him that came out over time. And, and God exposed that through the severity and through the length of the trial. Sometimes we respond well at first, but when it continues to drag on and the circumstances don't change, um, that's a part of it. That's a part of it. God may change those. He may not. But he's working in our life through that. And he's conforming us to the image of Christ. If we learn the lessons of the psalmist here and we pour ourselves out in, to him in prayer as we commit ourselves to putting uh, our lives and our hearts before the light of his word, as we commit ourselves to growing into faith, uh, trusting in his promises and obeying him, then we will grow and be like Christ. If we don't do those things, then we will be miserable, sorry people to be around. <laughs> and we will be complainers and whiners and discouraged all the time. So, Calvin said it this way. Uh, He said this, It is indeed a monstrous thing obstinately to refuse to submit ourselves to him. And yet experience demonstrates that so long as he deals gently with us, we are always breaking forth into insolence. Since even a prophet of God required to have his rebellion corrected by forcible means, this kind of discipline is assuredly most needful for us. The first step in obedience being the mortifying of the flesh to which all men are naturally disinclined. It is not surprising if God bring us to a sense of our duty by manifold afflictions. Yea, rather, rather as the flesh is from time to time, time to time obstreperous, which is difficult to control. Yeah, I put that in parentheses in case I forgot what the word meant too. Uh, it's difficult to control. Even when it seems to be tamed... It is no wonder to find him repeatedly subjecting us anew to the rod. This is done in different ways. 
He humbles some by poverty, some by shame, some by disease, some by domestic distress, some by hard and painful labors. And thus, according to the diversity of vices to which we are prone, he applies to each its appropriate remedy. End quote. Isn't that a great quote? Uh, God knows what we need. Your trial is not my trial. My trial is not your trial. If I share that to you, you're going to be like, what's the big deal? If I told you what causes me stress in my heart. And if you shared rumors with me, I might tend to think, well, I don't, you know, I think I could handle that better. In the terms of I don't think I'd be so distraught by it. Uh, But that's because we each have nuances in our heart uh, that are unmortified, that are fleshly. And God knows how to deal with each one as a father does his children. That's what Calvin is getting at. So the good question to ask is, what have I learned through this affliction? What am I learning? To ask ourselves, is this drawing me closer to God and His Word and fellowship, or is it drawing me away? Uh, Has it made me more aware of my sin, or just made me more inwardly focused? And those are ways to discern how we're responding. But he says, and we have just a few minutes here, so we'll say this quickly. He says, but in the midst of it, though, again, he says, you are good and you do good. You are good and you do good, and that's the weight of it all. It's the truth that binds everything he said together, as we've already uh, mentioned. That God is good in the midst of the trial. And we have to rest finally in the goodness of God in the midst of the trial, or we're going to struggle. And our joy has to come from what he is doing to us. So we should see then a progression in our prayers. Sometimes when the trial initially comes... Our prayers are to make it go away. Our prayers are for relief. Our prayers are uh, for those kind of things, right? That's, that's kind of the, 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 the first wave of attack. But as it goes on and as we mature, our prayer should turn into, God, help me to learn righteousness through this. God, expose any sin that's in my heart and then give me the grace to repent of it fully. Father, help me to learn to walk in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. That should be the kind of prayer. That's as, as we mature, either in a trial, that should be the progression, or in our life, that should be the progression of our prayers. What are you doing in me, Lord? Conform me to the image of Christ. If this is how you've designed to conform me to the image of Christ, that's what I want. Do it. And it doesn't make the pain any less. Um, it makes it not devastating, and it gives it purpose, and it makes us able to sustain our joy in the midst of it. So that should be what we ask. Let's note just very, very briefly here this last part. To rest then in what God is doing in you. Here he says the arrogant, he describes they forged a lie against him. He later describes them in verse 70 as their heart is covered with fat. But in the midst of that he's saying, I observe your precepts and I delight in your law. I observe your precepts and I delight in your law. And again, just notice that in the midst of the trial... He is able to find joy in him. And he is being perfected in obedience. Because as they're doing that, he's being perfected in his faith and his delight in God and, and in his word. Which is just the opposite of the unfeeling heart of, spiritually unfeeling heart of unbelievers. Their heart is fat and though he is afflicted, his is sensitive uh, to God's word. And to God himself and to what he's doing. And we learn deeper obedience through what we suffer as Christ did, Hebrews 5. In verse 71 he says it again, It was good for me that I was afflicted that I may learn your statutes. 
that I may learn your statutes. Psalm 94, 12 says this, How blessed is the man whom you chasten, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. Let me add this too. We need to learn to see God's mercies in the trials. God's mercies in the trials. One, one quick illustration of that would be Deuteronomy 8 as they were walking through the wilderness. That was a trial for them. It was a testing. I tested you for those 40 years. And yet, what else did they say? They had manna. They had food. Their sandals did not wear out on their feet. God had led them in the wilderness. He did not abandon them. And so... Okay, I'm getting waved at. Uh, so the point is, is that they needed to see God's mercy in the trial. God's mercy in the trial. We need to see God's mercies in the trial. So even though there's difficulties, He is still caring for us and He is still present and giving us tokens of His goodness. So let me just quickly read this list and then we'll pray. Why does God give us trials? Sometimes it's discipline for sin, Hebrews 12. Sometimes it's to protect us from sinning, 2 Corinthians 12. Sometimes it's simply to glorify himself through our faith. There's Job, Matthew 5, to let our light shine. Sometimes it's to produce in us simply endurance of faith. He has a variety of reasons, but we need to learn to respond as the psalmist did, trusting in his goodness, resting in his word, delighting in his faithfulness, and drawing near to him in fellowship, which I would add is what eternal life is all about, that we might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so if it draws us into deeper fellowship, then it is only drawing us to a greater experience of the life that God has given us in Christ by the Spirit. Uh, Let me pray before the mob rushes in. Father, thank you for your word. Help us, Lord. We all hear this and know how we failed in trials. I'm teaching it and yet very aware of my own personal weakness and failure to implement these things too often in my own life. But help us to learn and to be reminded from your word of how we are to think about you and to respond when difficulties come into our life. Strengthen us and remind us through the gospel, through the realities of our inheritance in Christ, your present uh, help to us now by the Spirit and your ultimate purposes. And help us, Lord, at a more fundamental level to desire in our lives what you desire from our lives, which is to be conformed to your Son and have deeper and richer and intimate fellowship. Will you work in us at the deep level of our soul to want that more than we want anything else? And to so rightly approach trials and life, both the blessings and the difficulties, uh, to that end. And we pray these things in the matchless name of Christ, who's forgiven us of our sin. In Jesus' name, amen.